So this evening, we launch a new series, which really isn't a new series. If you have been with us, and if you were with us in January, you know that we launched Focus One as a series and campaign that we'd set out at the beginning of the year, and we are jumping into part two. Now, I have to say something before we, we jump in, is that and I've shared this with a few of the leaders. This is a little bit weird for me, okay? I've been preaching into a camera for six months, and now I'm looking at people in masks that I don't know whether or not you're happy or sad. I can barely tell what's going on. So like if you go like real wide-eyed, you know, then I'll take that as good, okay? And I also want to encourage you, you can get rowdy, you know what I mean? Like we can interact. There was a, there was a big joke happening, which was, uh, on the online in the chat when the chat was getting lit and everybody was jumping in there. They were putting all kinds of emojis. And I was like, you guys are way more expressive online than you are in person. Like we need to learn how to transfer that. We need to engage and to be here together uh, because staring at a bunch of ninjas is it's just, it's, it's a little bit, you know, different. I'm excited, but I'm also a little, you know, there's a little bit of trepidation there. But as I said, we're, we're launching this new revamp series, uh, Focus One 2.0. Here's why. At the beginning of the year, we said we want this year, before we knew what this year would be about, we want it to be about you focusing on one person. One person that you prayed about, maybe a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member, one person that you could pray for and engage with and spend time with and share the gospel of grace with and and aim to see God use you in their life to bring them to faith, to see renewal in their life. You see, in Focus One 1.0, part one, we saw that the mission of Christ is to be our mission, that the message of Christ is to be the message that we share, and that when we follow the way of Jesus and we help connect life to the way of Jesus, which is our mission statement as a church, that we will see transformation happen. And so we were praying about where we're going to go this fall once we started to come back into in-person gatherings. We felt like we need to come back to Focus One, in, invite you to, to pray about a new Focus One if you weren't here at the beginning, to pray for you to re-engage with your Focus One. If everything else and the craziness of this world kind of made that person fade away, because we've heard actually of some of the people that you guys have engaged with come to faith in Christ. Some of them have begun to get engaged. Some of you have been able to care with them or care for them and spend time with them as they were going through difficult seasons. And we believe that it's important that we care for people and we focus on them. But we also want to look at biblical examples here in part two of people that show us what it looks like to focus not only on an individual, but also on a community. Here tonight, we're looking in the life of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a man who not only cared for individuals, but he is a man who cared for a community, in particular, the community of God's people. And as we'll see, he laid everything down to sacrifice his time and his talent, his treasure, the comfort that he had to care for them, to help to rebuild them. And the reason why it's so important for us to see that we are not only called to focus on individuals, but on communities, and in particular, on God's people, is because when you focus on one person, the prayer is that you would bring them to a community. 
to a church, to a family where they can belong, where they can be accepted, a place full of scars, but a place full of people that are committed to serving one another and sacrificing for one another and caring for one another and being okay with the diversity and being okay with the difference of opinions within a family because we're one, we're united. And so we're going to see that tonight in the story of Nehemiah. And so we don't have the the verses on the screen, but if you have your Bible, which you do if you have a phone, you can pull that out. If you go at our Crossbridge app, there's a Bible in there, or you can go to Bible Gateway or to YouVersion. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 through 20. So I'll give you a second to turn there, and we'll read it, and I'll give you a little bit of context about what's happening here in this passage. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 through 20. Here's what it says. Then I, this is Nehemiah, came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. He's leaving Babylon, coming to Jerusalem. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here the context is in 445 B.C., Babylon is the large empire that has overtaken Israel. They have destroyed Jerusalem. They have taken all of these uh, Jews into Babylon for many, many, many years, and they have kind of assimilated into this new culture. Nehemiah is a Jew. He is living in Babylon. He has been there for almost all of his life, if not his whole life. And he has ascended to a position that is desirable. He is the cupbearer to the king, meaning he is the right-hand man of the king. He is a man who has great influence in the capital. What he says matters. He has the ability to influence the king. He has the ability to influence other people. 
He is professionally successful. He also lives in the palace, and so he has all the luxury you could imagine. He has all the comfort you could imagine. He has everything you would ever want. He is professional, is successful professionally. He is influential. He's the original influencer. He's got the blue check mark and everything, guys. Some of you are trying to be TikTok famous. I know, it's hard in the streets. He knew how to do the dances with the thing, you know? He knew how to do it. He's the original. He has all the luxury, all the comfort, everything you could ever imagine. And it says here that he goes to the king after he hears about Jerusalem, and he says, I want to leave. I want to go to Jerusalem. My people, who I don't really know because I'm living in Babylon, I'm with you. All my friends are Babylonians, but I want to leave everything, and I want to go to Jerusalem to help them rebuild the wall so that that city can once again thrive because those people are hurting and in need. And the king, King Artaxerxes, who could care less for the Jews in Jerusalem, says you can go because Nehemiah has favor with the king. And the king loves Nehemiah. So he sends him with some men and some horses and some letters from the king, and he goes to Jerusalem. He leaves everything. You've got to think about that for a moment. He leaves everything you could ever want to go to a land he doesn't really know, to a people he doesn't really know. Why? Because his faith reminded him that he belonged to that community, that eternal community of God's people he belonged to, even though he didn't know them, even though they couldn't be more different. They were culturally different. But they were united through faith, and they were hurting, and they needed him, and so he was willing to lay aside everything to go there and be with them and to help them and to bring what he can to rebuild that city and that community. You see, what that shows us is that all great works begin with a burden that gives birth to a vision. All great works begin with a burden that gives birth to a fear. We have vision. See, a lot of us have vision. We have vision for our life. We have vision for our career. We have vision for romance. We have vision for our friends. We have vision for our family and our kids. But if you have vision with no, that is not supported and steered by a burden, it will not manifest itself. It will never give way. That vision will drift. Your goals will never be achieved. You have to have a burden as the foundation by which your vision is birthed off of. Here's an example. Some of you can relate with this. You have a vision for healthy living. That's me. I have a vision for healthy living. And when this coronavirus thing started, I told myself, listen, I'm going to start running all the time. I'm going to run three times a week. I'm going to start eating better. When I go out, outside dining, when I sit out there and they ask me if I want fries, I'm going to say fruit cup. Okay? Because I got a vision for healthy living. It's time to get right. You know how many times I've run in this uh, pandemic? Zero. You know how many times I've, cho- I've you know, chose a fruit cup? Zero. I don't even know if I've had fruit. In the pandemic, okay? I have a vision for healthy living, but I don't have a burden for it. Not yet. And so it never actually takes place. There's no great work in my life because there's no burden that is supporting the vision. 
All great works begin with a burden that gives birth to a vision. That's why people that are living healthy typically have had something happen in their life or the life of someone they love where there's a health scare that causes them to say, hey, I got a burden now. <laughs> I'm going to live healthy. And that vision gives way. And so here, Nehemiah, he has a burden for a people he doesn't know, and that burden gives way to a vision that leads him to give up everything you could ever want, and he does so. You see, when you have vision without a burden supporting it, you just simply have sight. Vision and sight are very different. Vision looks beyond Sight looks in the immediate surrounding. Sight just analyzes what is around you and what isn't working and just tries to fix those things to make yourself more comfortable. Vision is concerned with what is outside of you, what is far beyond you, where are you going? And so therefore, sight has no concern about other people and communities that are affected and are broken and are struggling and are hurting. Has no concern. Only People that have just sight are only concerned with what is around them, what is affecting them, what could affect them or won't affect them. Vision calls you to think about other people that are hurting and affected. Cause you to want to run to them, to have a vision attached to their hurt and their pain and their brokenness. You see, sight just kind of moves to make things better in the moment, but vision plans its steps. Vision is strategic. Helen Keller has a great quote. She says this, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but no vision. The most pathetic, that's strong, in the world is someone who has sight but no vision. It's a challenging question to ask yourself is, do you have sight or do you have vision? Do you have sight in your career? Do you have sight with your time? Do you have sight with your talent or your treasure? Do you have sight with your friends? Do you have sight with your relationship? Do you have sight with your romance? Or do you have vision? Because Nehemiah here, the only reason why he was able to make the move to leave everything beside and go and accomplish the vision of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem is because he had a burden for God's people. That would have been a pie-in-the-sky dream that would have never taken place unless the burden gave birth to that vision. And it wasn't going to be easy. It's not just like, well, he's the cupbearer. He's got all this influence. He's got all this money. He can go do it. I mean, let him do it. No one else can do it. It was going to be tough work. We read in the passage that when he gets there, he gets a few people with him, and he goes and he inspects the walls and the dragon gate and the dung gate. I mean, they had great naming, you know, situations there. Unbelievable. Dragon gate. You don't want to live near the dung gate, I'll just tell you that. He goes around and he inspects it, and it says, if you, if you notice, that when he gets to the walls, the animal that he's riding on, the donkey, cannot fit under the rubble. That means the walls are broken down so badly that you can't even enter. Like a, a small donkey can't even get under the rubble. It is going to be tough work to rebuild these walls, and he is going to face opposition it's not like he's going to get there and everyone's going to lay out the parade and everyone's going to be so excited because there's a lot of people there who do not want to see this city rebuilt. They do not want to see God's people thrive. It says this in verse 10. When Sambalat, the Horonite, again, great names, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, that Nehemiah was coming with the king's orders to help rebuild the walls, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of God's people. 
So he gets there, and he sees this tough work that is ahead of him, and that there are these people actively working in the community against him that do not want to see the good of God's people. And yet he pushes forward. You see, we all expect opposition in life. We all expect that our visions that we have that are supported even with a burden, that there will be opposition. And many times we're willing to push through that opposition. Why? Because oftentimes the vision that we have in our life is for our own welfare. And so when your vision is just for you, you're more willing to push through opposition because you think, I got to be disciplined, I got to push through this adversity, I got to make that sacrifice because if I get through it, I think it's going to benefit me. It's going to give me more opportunities, it's going to give me more influence, it's going to give me more money, it's going to make me feel better about myself. Whatever it is, I'm willing to push through the adversity, I'm willing to push through the opposition because it's going to benefit me. But you notice with Nehemiah, his vision has almost nothing to do with him. It is completely focused on others, people he doesn't even know, and yet he's willing to push through the opposition. And that is so, such a challenging thing to consider in his example, is that Nehemiah's vision was established around others' needs. I want to ask you a question. Does the vision of your life or your career or your relationships put in, fill in the blank, does your vision include other people? You may have a vision board, you know? I don't really know how they work. You cut out the magazine, I think, and you put it up, and maybe that's old school. You have a vision board. Does it include other people? Or is, is are, are the vision for your life is about you? Because it's very clear that as people of God, as Christians, your vision is to include other people in every aspect of your life. It is to include communities of people that are hurting. It is to include God's people. Is the church in your vision? Are other people in the city that, that need to see God's grace and renewal to their brokenness? Is that included in your vision? Or is your vision only about you? You see, Scripture is really clear for us. It says that Christ died for the church, and we are the church. He gave up his life for you and for me so that we might be a family, diverse, messy, but fighting for unity, seeking to sacrifice and to serve one another, seeking to share everything for the, for the good of the other person that you may or may not know, that you may even disagree with on things. That our vision is to be a communal vision for the greater good, for the common good of this community and how God could use this community in the life of a larger community in the city. But we get so influenced, myself included, in our culture that is so individualistic that everything you read, every podcast you listen to, every article that you begin to browse is going to tell you to fight for what you want what you need, it preaches to you to not consider other people. But God's vision for us as the church is that he's going to use us to bring renewal in the city. Jesus told us that he's praying and that we should pray like him, that the kingdom of heaven would come to earth through us. Do you believe that? 
See, the ultimate vision is that God is going to make all things new through the life of the church and that we're going to be united to him. See, your vision, your eventual, eventual vision, when you come and meet your creator and you are, all the tears are wiped away and your sin is washed white as snow, you are not alone. You are with your family. You're with God's people. Your vision is to include other people because that's God's vision for you as the church. That is our vision. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5.20 says. We are, do you know what it's going to say? Ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. If you have a Bible with you, just underline that. We are ambassadors. Just those three words. 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. The reason I want to say to underline we are ambassadors because that's really important. We are ambassadors, not the pastors, not just the staff at church, not just the elders or deacons, not just those who are ministry-minded, not just those who have the time, not just those who are more theologically studied, not just those who have a greater heart of compassion than other people. We are the ambassadors, literally everyone, if you claim faith in Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ and God is making his appeal through you, which means God is carrying out his vision through you. You see, why is God's burden for the world and God's burden for the church, why should that be your burden? Because you're part of his vision and he is carrying out his vision through you. You're an ambassador of Christ. God is making his appeal through you. He's carrying out his vision through you, not apart from you. And so our vision is to include other people. And you may hear that and you may feel like, man, that, does, that sounds like bad news. Sounds like, can I even care about myself at all? What about my professional dreams? What about my romantic dreams? What about the future I want for my kids? What about the life that I really want to live? You see, here is the good news. God is not telling you to sacrifice the personal visions that you have in your life. He's calling you to use them for his glory and for his church and for other people. To consider how other people are to be added into that. How they can be a part of that. And it will, there will be adversity, it will require sacrifices, but we are one church with one calling and one vision to be ambassadors together for God making his appeal through us. That we would be people that when we see rubble and when we see ruins, that we would have a heart to lay aside things that benefit only us for the sake of others so we can help rebuild them. Listen, church, our world, if you didn't know, our world is really hurting. It's hurting. All types of people in all types of ways, mental, emotional, physical, our world is hurting. And you know where God is calling us to go as the church? To them. To be ambassadors. For God to make his appeal through us. For God to use us as part of his vision for renewal to connect people's lives to the way of Jesus. And it's not just the world collective that is hurting. The church, universal, is hurting. There's a, a study that came out from Barna, which the Barna group is the equivalent of the Pew Research for political campaigns. 
Barna Group came out and said this. In the next 18 months, because of the pandemic, most likely one in five churches in America will close its doors. One in five churches in America in the next 18 months will close its doors. That's over 75,000 churches. That's unbelievable. The church is hurting. Our church is hurting. Crossbridge. A lot of you have lost your jobs. You have been furloughed. You have had your pay cut. You are struggling with mental health. You're feeling lonely and isolated. You're, you're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling with your kids. You've got online schooling. And you're like, wait, why well, wouldn't sign up for this? You're struggling with where our world is and the state of our world, and you have fear. Our church is hurting, too. Where's God calling you to go? What's he calling you to include in your vision, your church, your city, your world? He's calling you to seek to bring church in particular is hurting. But listen, there is a better future. Do you believe that God is a better future? We sang that, right? He's going to do it again. He's faithful, and he's going to continue to be faithful. There will be adversity, there will be opposition, but God will be faithful. Look what it says in verse 17. Nehemiah in verse 17 says that he goes around, he gathers the people together, he says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Listen to that. He doesn't come in and say this, guys, your city's in really bad shape. The walls are broken down, but guess what? It's okay. I'm here. I'm here. I got the king's orders. I got the money. I got the people. I got the vision. Your savior is here, Nehemiah. He doesn't do that because Nehemiah is not self-important. He understands that this is community work because it's a communal reward. And so he comes to God's people and he says, hey, we're going to do this together. This isn't just about me. I have my part to play, but all of you have a part. He's not self-important. And then verse 18, he says that he told them of the hand of God, how God had been upon him for good, and also the words of the king had spoken. The king of Babylon said, yes, go and rebuild. And the favor that God had given him, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, and the people respond like this. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. See, I pray that this message wouldn't just be another message where you, you have one little, you know, nugget that you take away or maybe you learn something. You're like, oh, it was 445 BC. That's a long time ago. But that you hear God's call to you, the church, that we are to rise up and build. Not just a few of us, not just one of us, we are to rise up and build because we are the ambassadors and God is making appeal through us, not through me, not through just you, through us. Let us rise up and build. I got a question for you. Will you rise up and build? I'm gonna ask you to respond. Will you rise up and build? We got to do that again. Will you rise up and build? Yes. Listen, come on. I know we're all hurting and we're all going through different things, but God is calling us, church, to care for each other and to care for our city and to do it together. Stop being so focused on ourselves. Include other people in our vision. And there will be adversity. It's what happens here in, in verse 19. It says that Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the 
Ammonite, they got together, they started mocking him and jeering at him. And it says, what is this thing that you were doing? They threatened him. They said, we're going to tell the king. Listen, we're going to tell the king that you're kind of like defying him. You're trying to set up your own kingdom. That threat falls flat. You know why? Here's how he responds. He looks at those who are jeering at him in his adversity, and he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He doesn't say, who are you? Come on. He says, God's going to make us prosper. This isn't my vision. This is God's vision. God will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise, and we will build. No amount of threats are going to stop us. You can mock us all you want, but you have no portion or right or claim. We will rise up and build. See, that is true of the work that God has called us to do, that God will make us prosper, but it's also true of the work that God has done for us. You see, we are people that are here for one reason and one reason alone. It's because Christ did the work that we couldn't do. He was a bridge for us between death and life. See, we are broken down walls that Christ rebuilt through his work and his effort. Do you understand this? That the God of all glory, Christ the Son, perfect three in one with the Father, Son, and Spirit, laid aside his glory, became a servant, subjected himself to great adversity, to great mockery, to jeering, to threats. Ultimately, that adversity cost him his life and the Father forsaking him on the cross. Why did Christ do that? Because his burden was you and your redemption. His burden was your forgiveness and the grace that would be extended to you through faith in him. You see, Jesus' vision was the cross. And the reason Jesus' vision was the cross is because his burden was you. We are broken down walls that Christ built up through his work. And when you believe this, when you understand this, it should change the way you live. It should make you not only think about yourself, but think about other people because your Savior was not thinking only of himself. He thought of you, your sin and your shame and your guilt when he went through the adversity of the cross for you. If you have any questions about what it looks like to live as a Christian, look to your Savior. The gospel of Christ reminds you that you're not to think about just yourself. You're to think about other people. You're to rise up and build and go through the adversity together. Here's a side note. If you don't face adversity in your faith, if you've never been mocked for your faith, people never questioned you about how much time and, and talent and treasure you give to the church, you haven't ever received maybe threats or you've been nervous in certain situations because you took a step of faith to share really who you are as a son or daughter of Christ. If you never face adversity in your faith, you're probably ignoring God's burden and his vision. Because when you really look at God's burden for his church and you begin to follow after the vision that he sets for you and for me, it's going to bring adversity. But the promise is this, God will make us prosper. Do you believe that? God's going to make us prosper, church. He calls us to rise up and build, to be the bridge for one another and for our city. So my prayer is that we would do that together. This would be the first of many times where we're gathering together to worship, where we're serving one another, where we're sacrificing for one another, where we can be the bridge in each other's lives for the glory of God and in our city as well.
Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we are here for one reason and one reason alone, and that is your grace. We don't deserve to have this family. Thank you, God, for this family that you have brought together. The diversity, the differences, but the unity that we can strive for together. Lord, we are broken down and we are ruins. We try to put on a good face. We try to present ourselves as having everything together, but we don't. We think about ourselves more than others. We make poor choices. We have misplaced vision. But you love us anyway. You give us great promises. Despite our inability, you tell us that you will prosper in and through us. And so I pray, God, that tonight as we partake of the table together, that you would remind us that we can bring everything to you, we can lay everything down because it is a better vision to be surrendered at your feet, to include other people in your church, in your city. It is more exciting than to think only of ourselves. Christ, I pray that you would remind us of that as you have shown us that you thought of us as we partake of this table together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.